Hi, I'm the person whose closet is put in color order, but I'll also pick up an earthworm without thinking twice. In fact, I did yesterday. <laughs> it needed my help. I'm not afraid to be a little messy. Human nature is messy, but nature nature can help us embrace it. I love the brand seventh generation. Their laundry detergent lifts away tough stains with the power of bioenzymes. That's exciting. You wipe your hands on your pants after you pick up an earthworm. Seventh generation is like, don't worry, hug a dirty tree, huff some bark. It's good for you. That is the power of seventh generation. Find laundry detergent and other laundry products at seventhgeneration.com. I love worms. I know I usually save my secrets for the end of the episode, but I'm going to tell you my secret favorite candy. It's Reese's peanut butter cups. It's really Reese's anything, but Reese's peanut butter cups are the thing that I'm like, have I had a bad day? I get these. Have I had a good day? I get these. Chocolate salty peanut butter, the textures. I love everything about them. Also that there's two. So I'm like, oh, I get this one for later, which is one second later. Anyway, Reese's peanut butter cups. I love you. That's all. If you're me, you can shop Reese's peanut butter cups now at a store near you found wherever candy is sold. And I am. Oh, hey, it's the last person who sat on that velour couch and left a butt print, Allie Ward. We're back to talk pigments and skin and sun and soap so, so, so much. Okay, so this ologist studied biological anthropology at Cambridge, got a PhD at Penn State, and is currently doing a postdoc in quantitative and computational biology at USC, University of Southern California. And she hosts the PBS Digital Studios series, Why Am I Like This?, which has the best title ever. And starting this fall in 2023, She's going to have her own lab as an assistant professor of anthropology at the University of Michigan. So while she was in L.A., she came over one afternoon to sit on the couch and chat melaninology, melaninology, which, yes, I did find examples of this word used in published work to describe the study of biological pigment. And the root means dark, and we're going to get right into it. But first, thank you to everyone who supports the show at patreon.com slash ologies. You can join for a dollar a month. You can send in questions for the episodes. Thank you to everyone wearing ologies merch from ologiesmerch.com. We have also kid-friendly episodes available. They're called Smologies. Those are linked in the show notes. And thank you to everyone who rates and subscribes and leaves reviews. I read them all all of them, such as this fresh one, from Kitty to Cat, who called the show just the gosh dang best and said, how many different times can a science podcast make me cry? I don't know, but Ologies is helping me find out. That's what I'm here for. Let's cry about science a little bit. But mostly, for the most part, we don't cry that much. Also, um, Mr. 22345s did a bunch of sevens who left a review about how the playback kept jumping around in the last episode just FYI, that's not the episode. That is just y'all's internet connections. So it's just buffering slow. So if you think the editing is skipping around, just hang on, download the whole thing if you're in spotty Wi-Fi or service, and then it'll be smooth sailing. I promise. We would not put it up an episode like that. We love you too much. Okay, on to the episode. Oh, you're going to love this one. Grab a hat and get ready for dark skin, light skin, in-between skin, ginger locks, Beards, sunscreen, UVAs, UVBs, shower habits, cultural colloquialisms, medical math, ochre, freckles, and so so much more with biological anthropologist who is just a hoot. Oh, you're going to love her. Science communicator and soon-to-be assistant professor, melaninologist, Dr. Tina Lasisi.
Hello, my name is Tina Lasisi, and my pronouns are she, her, hers. And doctor. Dr. Tina Lasisi. So Dr. Lasisi was the first Black student to graduate with a PhD in anthropology from Penn State University after she presented her PhD defense about a year and a half ago. How was your defense? My defense was really great, actually. It was awesome. And I'm so grateful for that because, like, I hear so many horror stories of, like, you know, basically being grilled and publicly humiliated. But it was just, like, such a lovely event where I got to tell everyone my story. It was on Zoom. Uh, I was actually happy that it was on Zoom because that meant that all of my friends and, like, family from overseas could participate equally to anyone who would have been in person. And I got to tell everyone, like, you know, this is the wild ride that I've been on for, like, the last six years. And it was great, like, great questions at the end. My committee afterwards was just like, yeah, so we're going to ask you a really difficult question. What are your plans next? (laughs) Just, like, God bless them. Like, they were great. They were great. It was just like such a beautiful way to end six years of research. Mm. What was your dissertation? My dissertation was on the genetic architecture and evolutionary function of human scalp hair morphology. How did you get to the point where you were like, okay, I want to study scalp hair morphology in all of the things in biological anthropology? Did you go through different kind of maze to get to that particular dissertation or was there like a broader area that you really loved? Okay, buckle up. I'm going to tell you the whole story. So basically gag is I wasn't even planning to go into biological anthropology. So trust me, it's going to make sense. Okay. (laughs) You have my full attention. But uh, when I was very young, uh, living in the Netherlands, we had Cambridge English Dictionary. And Mm -hmm. I remember asking my dad, what's a Cambridge? And he like brought me there when I was 12. And I went, I was like, oh my God, it's like Harry Potter. And I had decided then and there when I was 12, like, you know, I need to go to this university. I want to go to Cambridge. I want to have my Harry Potter experience. I didn't know what (laughs) I wanted to study there. And throughout my youth, I had known I was always interested in culture. So I'm Bulgarian, Nigerian. I was born in Bulgaria, lived in like Switzerland, grew up mostly in the Netherlands. So basically like so used to being in between cultures that it felt like such a thing for me. I was like, okay, I love learning about like different cultures. I was really interested in Japan, but I was like, instead of Japanese studies, what if we did something that allowed us to look at more cultures? And I was scrolling through the, you know, course options and they had this thing called archaeology and anthropology. And so I was like, huh, what is that? Like I read through it and basically they were like, you could study archaeology, cultural anthropology and biological anthropology. And I was like, oh, you know, cultural anthropology sounds like fun. I don't know about the other two, but that one sounds good. So I went there to Cambridge thinking that I was going to be a cultural anthropologist, which made sense because like I wasn't really a science person. Uh, I loved like, you know, people. And then I was in this lecture on human biological variation in the first year where they talked about skin color. And I saw, you know, this very well-known set of maps that we often show people of the distribution of ultraviolet radiation around the world and the distribution of skin color around the world. And it's like, do you see? Oh, yeah, that makes sense. And for more on this, you can see the 2010 study, Human Skin Pigmentation as an Adaptation to UV Radiation, which was published by Dr. Nina G. Jablonski. So I saw that and it really blew my mind. I was like, wow, I have always been aware of the fact that, you know, people have different skin color, but I never thought about how it was patterned around the world. And so that made me think like, oh, okay, what about other traits? How do those vary and why did those evolve? And my immediate question as a black woman was, okay, what about my hair? Uh 
Like, okay, I understand why my skin is brown. Why is my hair curly? Mm-hmm. And the wild thing is that there wasn't a good answer. What should have been like a really quick Wikipedia search that satisfied my curiosity became this rabbit hole where I basically had this postdoctoral fellow who was at our college who took me under his wing and was like, hey, let's talk about bioanth. And I was like, oh, so I have all these questions and I can't find anything about like hair. And he basically was like, well, Sounds like that could be something for like your undergraduate thesis. And as an undergrad, like I decided, okay, let me like get hair samples and like measure them. And like, yeah, long story short, basically this thing that should have been a short Wikipedia search (laughs) ended up being a decade plus (laughs) journey into understanding this trait and like why humans have it. Does that mean that when someone goes to Wikipedia in the future, they find your stuff? I mean, they better cite me. They better. I mean, but in fairness, step number one is like, you know, let me also finish uh, publishing everything. Uh, If my advisor is listening to this, I'm sorry, I'm working on the paper. Hey, you just got a PhD. You come on, fresh. Now, you mentioned this map that was a really big eye opener for you. Mm -hmm. Most people haven't taken those courses. Mm -hmm. And normally I'd be like, okay, I'd go and I'd look at the map, I'd do an aside, and I'd explain it. But Mm Since you're here, (laughs) (laughs) how do you describe that map and what you got from it? Yes. So basically the way that I would describe it is you look at the map of ultraviolet radiation. So ultraviolet radiation, it's why you wear sunscreen, right? You know, a lot of people are like, oh, UV radiation, we wear sunscreen for that. So that's basically what you need to think of. It's like something that can affect your skin and actually your DNA if you're exposed to it too much. However, it affects you differently depending on how much melanin you have on your skin. And so you look at this distribution, this world map, where closer to the equator, you have higher intensity of solar radiation. And further from the equator, in general, the pattern is less UV radiation. The exceptions are if you live in a very high altitude place, and if you've ever been hiking and gotten sunburned while you've been hiking in a mountain, then you know that that's the case. That makes sense. And then there are some places very far up north in the Arctic where you can have a little bit more solar radiation, but that's generally the pattern. Closer to the equator, more UV radiation further away, you have less. And you look at the distribution of skin color around the world and you see the same pattern. You look at close to the equator and you see, okay, people who live in these regions seem to have darker skin than people who live further away from those regions. And what's pretty significant about that is that we might think of it as, oh, well, in Africa, they have dark skin. In Europe, they have light skin. The pattern's actually more complicated than that because within Africa, you see that closer to the equator, populations have darker skin than African populations who are further from the equator. They're all African populations, but they're all adapted to the UV radiation there. And what's more is that you have populations across Asia, across the the Pacific, the Americas that are close to the equator who have skin that is as dark as many African populations that are close to the equator. And so from the perspective of a discipline that's really interested in human variation and that has unfortunately contributed to ideas of race and this idea that there are different types of people, this directly challenges that. It tells us that Human variation is structured in a way that is much more complex than saying there are three types of people, you know, Mm -hmm. Africans, Europeans, and Asians. Mm -hmm. Absolutely not. Like, it's much more complex than that. And so for me, that's really what it gave me. Remember that 2010 study I mentioned with this map? So the author, Dr. Nina Jablonski, 
also happens to be an anthropologist at Penn State, and Dr. Lassisi has now co-authored papers with her. Absolute boss move, a joy to witness. But yes, this anthropological work changed so much for her. A lot of us, I mean, I would say most of us, like we grow up learning how to categorize people, whether it's by ideas of sex and gender and ethnicity and race. We are socialized to think, okay, if you see this, this, and that, you put a person in this box. If you see this, this, and that, you put them in that box. And seeing this map or these two sets of maps broke those boxes for me. I was Mm -hmm. like, huh, okay. And it made me really think about why. Why does this variation exist? Instead of necessarily immediately thinking we need to ignore differences because differences are bad, it brought it into a new light. It said, okay, there are differences. And like how those differences are distributed is like really complicated. And it has a really interesting story that tells you something about history, big history, evolutionary history. And so that to me was like just super cool. And is anyone studying what's happening since cars and planes and boats? Because it's relatively recently that we've gotten around so rapidly, you know? Mm -hmm. I live in California. The sun beats down on my face all the time. Mm -hmm. I have not a lot of skin pigment, (laughs) mostly Northern Italian Mm -hmm. and British. What's happening as we move around in climates that we maybe didn't evolve in? That is a great question. So in general, the thing about evolution is Evolution by natural selection, and that's really what we're talking about. When we say you're adapted to a particular environment, the idea is that over multiple generations, individuals have traits that fit the environment better. And by fit the environment better, meaning you thrive more in that environment. A lot of times when we ask questions about like people having a mismatch between whatever trait and their environment these days, it has to do with the fact that there's been too short of a time for there to be a difference. And so looking at something like skin color, for example, a lot of times I get this question of, oh, well, I have ancestors like from this region and it doesn't match what you say is expected by the map. Or of course, like if we think about places like the US where we know that people came there pretty recently, it's not going to fit those expectations because there haven't been enough generations for natural selection to act on it. And It's not just that there haven't been enough generations. It's that since humans have had culture and have developed, you know, all kinds of technologies to stop natural selection from, you know, taking out those of us who aren't really a great fit for the environment. (laughs) It's it's been, you know, a a thing that has stopped us from being shaped by natural selection as much as we may have been 10,000 years ago. 20,000 years ago, and so on. Do you have some sunscreen? In general, what I would say you need to like focus on and think about is how can this affect reproduction? Mm. Evolution, at the end of the day, is who has babies and who doesn't. Yeah. It's, it's <laughs> no, really that simple. It does not care how happy you are. It doesn't care. It doesn't care about anything else. It doesn't care how happy you are. <laughs> doesn't care how healthy you are even, right? So a lot of people are like, oh, well, if evolution is supposed to make us better adapted, why do things like cancer exist? And why are some people balding? And I'm like, well, tragically, evolution doesn't care about you post-reproductively. Yeah. That means, have you had babies? Done. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. You can die now. 
Like, it's, it's pretty harsh. It's pretty harsh. But evolution be like, it's I like, don't care about you anymore. Literally, it's like, fuck off and die. It in truly, that order. <laughs> that, is, that, is all, that is all that matters. And so what's actually really interesting is when we talk about fitness and, and even today with all of the culture that we have, there are going to be various factors that affect people's fertility, their fecundity. Don't ask me exactly what the difference is between those two. I think fertility is like how many surviving offspring you end up having versus fecundity is the ability to actually have kids biologically. So this is correct. The fecundity rate worldwide of childbearing peoples is 20 children. That's how many children you can make if you can make them. But the actual fertility of birthing people, two children, at least in the U.S. So it's kind of a a can versus a will situation. But you know what? After six or seven, they really start raising themselves. Am I right? I don't know. But those things, if they are affected by anything, it doesn't matter like what else it does to you. That is going to affect how many descendants you have. And at the end of the day, that's all that evolution is really about. Uh, And okay, UV, UVA, UVB, Mm -hmm. does our skin care or know the difference? Basically, UVA is associated with more like immediate erythema or redness like in the skin and that immediate kind of like sunburn. And there's actually different types of tanning. So there is the tanning that you have immediately after being exposed to like UV radiation, UVA radiation, where you go into the sun and you're, you're a little toasty. You're a little toasty and it can like fade pretty quickly. So that and the redness can fade quickly. And you have UVB that's responsible for your more long-term tan. So like if you go to tan over like, you know, multiple days, it stimulates your melanocytes to start making more melanin. And that is like tan that stays for longer. And that UVB is also responsible for converting this precursor to vitamin D to its active form. Oh. So in a way, like I like to say that, you know, humans also photosynthesize. It's just like something different that we photosynthesize. And that is one of the reasons evolutionarily that it is beneficial to have less pigmentation where there is less UV radiation overall, because as great as it is to be protected from UV radiation, we actually need some of it to make vitamin D. And so- there you go. We have this like careful balancing act that occurs whereby in some places the UV radiation is so strong that it damages your folate, which is like another nutrient that's really important for healthy pregnancies. If you don't have a healthy pregnancy, you don't have a healthy baby, you lose that evolution. Yeah. So boom, we don't like that. So UV radiation can lower folate levels and lead to issues in fetal development, but not enough sun penetrating your skin and you get low vitamin D, which can happen to more pigmented people who live in cloudy areas. So if you're feeling sluggish or tired, losing hair, maybe losing sleep, say, hey, doctor, why don't you do me a solid and check my vitamin D before I cry on you? That's how I'd phrase it. But there's a lot of reasons why you need enough vitamin D as well that affect your health. So that's the other thing that you have to play around with. And that's why we see this you know, really impressive close fit around the world with the skin color that people have when their ancestors have stayed in a place long enough. It's like, it's, wow, it's like you're optimized for this, like you're protected enough, but also letting through just enough radiation so you can make enough vitamin D. 
And so without that vitamin D these days, like if you're not going out into the sun or mm-hmm. maybe you work in the night shift and you mm-hmm. live in a basement, what happens if you're not getting vitamin D from the sun? So a lot of things happen and we're actually still actively learning what the consequences are. And what's really funny and funny, not haha, but funny tragic is that there are plenty of people who are honestly almost translucent who are vitamin D deficient. <sighs> like, the, look, even if you have no melanin, like, you know, you can not be getting enough sunlight. That is possible. And so there's effects on mental health. There's effects on the immune system. There's all kinds of things. And they're still learning. They're associating like vitamin D with like so many different things. I think some people were also making some associations with how people were able to fight off COVID infections, like as a more recent example. So one November 2022 study titled Association Between Vitamin D Supplementation and COVID-19 Infection and Mortality notes that half of the U.S. population is vitamin D deficient and that vitamin D deficiency is associated with a crappy immune system and more infections and that folks with lower vitamin D levels experience higher rates of COVID-19. So in this study, military veterans with low baseline vitamin D showed the largest decrease in COVID-19 infection after they got supplements. And Black veterans had even greater COVID-19 risk reductions with supplementation than white patients. So vitamin D, if you have darker skin, or if you live at high latitude during the winter, if you're a nursing home resident, if you're a healthcare worker, or a nocturnal goblin, maybe you're scrolling TikTok until dawn, you might want to look into it with a doctor who is not a podcast host. But it is intimately involved in a lot of physiological processes, it seems. And now getting to... Melanin. Yes. Exciting. Very. Melanocytes. Are there different types of skin pigment? Is it all melanin? Are there different types of melanin? Are there different shades of it? Or is it just a quantity thing? My ears are open. Okay. So melanin is super complex and super awesome. So melanin isn't actually one distinct, coherent thing. It's melanin's plural. It's like a class of chemical structures that have certain similarities. And one of the main distinctions that we can make is eumelanin versus pheomelanin. If we're looking at humans, those are two kinds of melanin that we have in our body. And so eumelanin is a type of brown, black pigment that is what's responsible for the range of variation from light to very dark colored skin and you know, light blonde hair to dark, you know, pitch black hair and, you know, all our eye color and all that good stuff. There's also pheomelanin. Pheomelanin is like this orange, yellow, reddish variant of melanin that is most obvious in redheads. Like that is a different kind of melanin that has like this different color. And so there are a lot of differences in the two kinds of melanins, but even for both of them, we don't know the definitive chemical structure of melanin. You know, that is the thing that always like surprises me. It's a polymer that we don't really understand. So it has like a bunch of units that are repeating in a way that people haven't, like you, you, we don't know what the final form is. It hasn't even reached its final form yet. I'm still evolving. And it's the same with, with pheomelanin. And so that to me is something that's always like impressed me. I'm like, wow, it's like so complex that we don't really even know its structure. And it's 
inconsistent. And so there could actually be a lot of subvariants of melanin, but in addition to melanin itself, we need to think about how it's packaged, right? So melanin is made by melanocytes and it's usually in these little vesicles called melanosomes. So in these melanosomes, you have a bunch of chemical processes that occur that create melanin. So you start with various precursors that go through this huge number of processes where you end up with either eumelanin or pheomelanin. And depending on the pH in the melanosomes, you get a different balance of eumelanin to pheomelanin. So this is something that we've learned. It's that all these melanocytes, they make both eumelanin Mm -hmm. and pheomelanin. So it's something they call mixed melanogenesis. And In certain cases, like if you have a certain variant of some genes, like MC1R, it's like a very important gene for pigmentation in general. If you have certain variants, it switches something whereby your final product is way more pheomelanin than eumelanin. And that's why some people have red hair. But in other cases, it can completely shut things down. And that's where we have certain kinds of albinism. And you can also have a lot of it where you can have just a lot of eumelanin at the end. So that is something that I think is pretty, pretty magical. Complicated, messy, and quite wonderful. Okay, so it's not just a matter of amount, but it's also different variations. What happens with freckles? Oh, what happens with freckles? That's a great question. So with freckles, basically what you have is like a combination of uneven distribution of melanin with more pheomelanin. So in general, our skin color is mostly a question of eumelanin, but people with red hair often have freckles as well. So it seems that some variants of MC1R is mostly what we think of also affect your skin in a way where you can have basically this patchy structure of what we end up calling freckles. So you can call freckles aphelides if you're a doctor or if you're trying to impress one. And that word comes from a Greek term meaning rough spot, which studs the face. And I think maybe the ancient Greeks were a little jealous of how hot people with freckles are. I don't have freckles, but I have blackheads. And no one tries to fake those with henna and a tiny paintbrush. Oh, and if you have real freckles, those are caused not by more melanocytes in those areas, but just an increased production of the actual melanin granules or the melanosomes in response to UV radiation. And once again, there are a few types. So UVA radiation makes up 95% of all the UV rays that hit Earth. And UVA that shit can pass right through glass. It hits deep within the skin. And that is what they blast you with in tanning beds. And it makes you tan, but also wrinkly and saggy. And when combined with UVB rays, potentially full of cancer. So the UVB rays, they're higher energy, but they don't penetrate the skin as deeply. But they can damage the DNA of your skin. They can lead to melanoma and other flavors of skin cancer. UVB can also cause cataracts. And the best way to avoid UVB rays is to just hide under the porch from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. when they are the highest. Or you could also wear a hat. But I do know that pheomelanin does a lot of things that are surprising. So one of Mm -hmm. the things about pheomelanin is that it doesn't respond to light in the same protective way as eumelanin. So eumelanin is photoprotective, which means that 
it's really good at taking that radiation and making sure that it doesn't damage your DNA and basically just holding, holding it down. So eumelanin comes in brown and black forms, and it's there dissipating up to 99% of the UVA and UVB radiation that you do absorb. So thank you, eumelanin. Now, pheomelanin, which tends to be yellow and reddish, well, pheomelanin, on the other hand, is phototoxic. And so what's really interesting is that they found that people with red hair who have a higher proportion of pheomelanin seem to be more prone to skin cancer in a way that doesn't just relate to you have less pigmentation. Mm. And another interesting fact is we don't just have melanin, you know, in our eyes, skin, and hair, these visible places. We also have neuromelanin. And I actually went down a a rabbit hole because I'm like, I don't even study like neuromelanin like that. And neuromelanin is made from eumelanin and pheomelanin. It goes through this process. You already have these precursors and you make this final form of like neuromelanin. And one of the things that they found is that neuromelanin is involved in a number of different things, but I started reading up about it in the context of Parkinson's. And I remember reading that people with red hair are more prone or to have to having Parkinson's or have like higher rates of Parkinson's, something like that, which is something that might have to do with the relative ah. proportion of eumelanin to pheomelanin that they have and and its ability, so the neuromelanin's ability to clean up whatever it's supposed to be cleaning up in the brain. So it's it's just super interesting that melanin does so many things. And that's just in humans. Like and I'm trying to stay in my lane, but <laughs> I, I would be remiss to not mention that you have melanin in all kinds of organisms. Fungi as well. That's the thing that got me. I was what? like, what? Fungi have melanin? Fungi have melanin. Like you can extract Who? you can extract melanin from plants and fungi. And especially like fungi are like a, a really efficient way of like getting more of them. And I remember reading about certain kinds of fungi that are in particularly hot environments that have more melanin. It seems to be doing something to protect them from some thermal radiation. And in some cases, some fungi are thought to have evolved this melanin to actually absorb more solar radiation to heat up more quickly because they're in very cold environments. So just melanin is this beautiful multifunctional thing. And if you think about it from like an evolutionary perspective, even though there are different forms of melanin, this structure is so old that we share it with the last common ancestor that we have with fungi. That's That's nuts. That's nuts. That actually makes me wonder if you are closer to the equator and you have more skin pigment Mm -hmm. and your hair is darker, let's Mm -hmm. say, do you get hotter? This is like a fascinating question to me. And I also ask this as a, as a transparent goth girl (laughs) who has no skin pigment, but wore all black all the time. Boom. And was sweating. But still, yes. It's so, it's so funny as, as somebody who, who grew up as a, you know, a little teenage goth in the Netherlands, (laughs) he was like, not so much an issue, but I really respect your dedication to gothdom in California. (laughs) So that's real. So this is really interesting to me. I love history and philosophy of science. One of the most fun things to me about science is the fact that it is done by scientists and scientists are subject to their own biases. And when you think about skin color these days, I would say that in general, nobody questions that it is useful in a very high solar radiation environment to have darker skin. It's like, we're like, yeah, 
no, they seem to be doing good. I think that they, they've got the right trait for, for, for the job. However, back in the 50s even, which is pretty recent, yeah. you can find articles where people are saying that it does not make sense that people have darker skin in places with more solar radiation because darker objects heat up faster in the sun. So there's no way that it's useful. They're like, there's no proven reason that it's useful at all. Like it's just probably very maladaptive. And it's super funny because I like to think of those people as like in publishing probably some British journal. I'm like, you know that the second you went out to colonial whatever, you were walking around looking like a lobster, but you said, nah, those people seem like they're struggling. That's fascinating to me. So- This is a great question, right? Do we have the same issue with black materials as we do with darker skin? And it doesn't seem to be the case in part because the effect that it has, it doesn't seem to be distinct enough. It doesn't seem to be that you get that much more solar radiation on darker skin as you do on lighter skin because lighter skin is not able to reflect as much and is probably because the radiation touches the surface of your skin. Mm -hmm. So you're already in trouble. You can't necessarily reflect enough of it back for it not to affect you. That's different than necessarily wearing those colors, right? One of the things that people remarked is that various tribes that lived in the desert would wear very dark clothing and that there were also very dark-haired goats in the Sahara. What it seems to be is that absorbing that radiation can be a good thing if it never reaches your skin. Mm -hmm. But in general, like as far as people go, like it does not seem that if you are darker skinned, you significantly heat up more than lighter skinned individuals. And where in the dermis, Mm -hmm. that's a a scientific term Mm -hmm. for skin. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I don't know what I'm talking about, but where in the dermis or epidermis or quasi-dermis is our pigment? (laughs) Great question. So it's in the epidermis. And so the melanocytes live at the bottom, at the base of the epidermis. And the way that they work is they have these tentacles, these dendrites that stick out into the epidermis and can deposit these melanosomes. So those little vesicles of melanin, those little melanin creating sacs into keratinocytes. So the keratin cells that are actually your skin. And In those keratin cells, as you are making more of them, basically you end up like pushing more up. So you make them at the base and then you slough off what's on the top and then just you have new and newer ones. And that's kind of how like exfoliation works. You take the top layer off and then there's like new cells underneath. Now, whether those melanosomes stay intact doesn't seem to be clear. In some cases, I've seen people say that it basically is like melanin granules and dust that's like spread out. In some cases, it may stay more, you know, directly in a melanosome, but that's kind of where it lives, at the very surface of your skin, basically. So your skin has the epidermis, that's the top layer, and then the dermis underneath that. And the dermis is kind of the hangout center for your hair roots and your sweat glands and other gooey things like that. But right before your surface epidermis turns into that deeper dermis, right at that border, there are those cells called the melanocytes. And they look kind of like an upside down 
octopus with a bulbous end and kind of arm thingies reaching toward the surface of your skin. And in these melanocyte octopus looking cells are organelles and they're called melanosomes. And they make the melanin granules and then they shoot them out of the ends of the arm things into your keratinocytes. Just call them skin cells. And this whole shebang, it deserves a fancy word. And you know what? It has one. Melanogenesis. Look at your arm. Look at your arm. All that drama just unfolding in it every day. And then what about in your hair? In your hair. So that's that's interesting. Like it gets deposited in your hair shaft in a similar way. There, we don't necessarily know exactly how that transfer of melanosomes happens in the hair. There's like some different ideas about options of how the melanosomes get transferred. But once it's there, it's in the keratin cells of your hair, which are different than the keratin cells in your skin. But the distribution of those melanosomes seems to be a little bit complicated because like an individual's hair shaft can be very different. Like you have individuals who have very thick hair shafts. You have individuals with very thin hair shafts. You can have a medulla in the middle of your hair. so like a hole or it might entirely be solid. And so if you look at microscope images of cross sections of hair, so like thin slices of hair shaft, you can see that there's differences in distribution. Some hairs have melanosomes that are just like clumpy distributions. Others are like a little bit more evenly distributed across the hair. There's just a lot of variation and all of that variation influences how dark it looks. So one of the things that I did in my undergrad actually is I worked with these really cool melanin chemists in Japan who had developed a way of chemically measuring the amount of eumelanin and pheomelanin that existed in the hair, which is really, it's just so cool. So they took all kinds of hair samples that I had and measured exactly how much eumelanin and pheomelanin was in them. And one of the surprising things that I found was something that went against my expectations looking at African and African descendant uh, individuals and their hair and different people of Asian ancestry in my hair. So I had expected, well, the Asian hairs that I've seen, whether they were, you know, South Asian or East Asian, they're black, they're jet black. That's a thing that like, I think a lot of us are familiar with. It's like jet black hair, Asian hair, you know, that that's a thing and it's awesome. Mm -hmm. So naturally you would think there must be more melanin in that than maybe some of these African hairs or people who are from the African diaspora because like you hold them up to the light and you kind of see through it and it's kind of brown. However, I found that that wasn't necessarily the case. Most East Asian hairs, most Asian hairs in general had less melanin. And so that made you think about what makes something look dark. Well, if you have a thicker hair shaft, then you're going to have more trouble passing light through it, right? So you might need less melanin to make it look completely black. As opposed to if you have a little bit of a flat hair shaft and it's a little bit of a thin hair, like it's like thin paper. It doesn't matter how dark the paper is, you can pass more light through it, right? And again, this was Dr. Lassisi's undergrad work, and it was published in her 2016 American Journal of Physical Anthropology paper, Quantifying Variation in Human Scalp Hair Fiber Shape and Pigmentation. And there was a correlation with skin color. So that was also something that was a little bit surprising. Within individuals who had dark hair, it seemed that individuals who had darker skin also seemed to produce more melanin everywhere. So in my sample, like I'll never forget, the individual that had the most melanin in their hair was a South Asian person that also had the darkest skin in my hair sample. Mm -hmm. And that was such a cool example of 
pleiotropy and the way that, so that has to do with genes that affect multiple traits. Oh. So you can have something like genes that affect melanin in some places in your body. And then you can have genes that affect the entire production of melanin throughout your body. And one of the things you can think about is like blue eyes. A lot of individuals have like lighter eyes, but you know, could also have darker hair. It doesn't necessarily have to go together. So there's a mechanism that we have by which we can kind of tinker with some aspects of our physical traits without tinkering with others. Yet a lot of times what's really interesting is figuring out how some traits might be connected with each other because you have the same genome in every cell in your body, pretty much, other than your gametes. So it's always a question of how are we using that genome to make different things? Are we using it in different ways? Are we using it in similar ways? Are there different pathways? All kinds of stuff. So all those locks of hair that you've been saving in a shoebox under your sink, you can science those. Getting back to those samples, were you able to tell that person, like, congratulations, I have 3,400 samples and yours is special? Or where are you, are you getting those from salons? Are you getting them from people who volunteer a hair or two? Exactly. It's really that. So, okay, it's it's so funny because, like, I've literally been doing this for, like, 10 years. And I'm like, I can't believe I can say I've been doing anything for 10 years. <laughs> a third of my life. <laughs> I think about that a lot. So I'm talking about research that I did when I was in undergrad. So when I was, you know, cute little undergrad that was like, I want to do a science. I basically said, I want to learn about pigmentation in hair. And I want to learn about hair morphology. And so I need to get hair samples from people. As a wee baby undergrad, I did not have resources, infrastructure, or money, but I had a lot of pizzazz. (laughs) I had a lot of energy. So what I did is I started with people that were around me and I was like, hey, I'm doing this study. Can you give me your hair for this study? And I'm also going to measure your skin color. And surprisingly, like, you know, a lot of people did were some of them my friends. Yes, but it's all good. I had like ethical approval to do the study. Mm -hmm. But then I also went to salons. So I it was especially important to me to get representation of people of African origin and people who are Afro descendant. And so at the time I was living in Cambridge in England, which isn't the most diverse place on earth. Not from Um, what I've heard. Shocking. But London was very close by. So like I went to London and I like explained to people, hey, this is what my research is about. I went to some barber shops and I was like, hey, you're already getting your hair cut. This is what my research is about. Can I have some of your hair? And in the end, I had like a little bit under a hundred hairs and I did all my little analyses. At some point, I, I did know who was who and especially people who were my friends. I'm like, mm-hmm. this is their hair. Uh-huh. And for one of my friends, I was like, girl, you have the straight, literally quantitatively the straightest hair. <laughs> In my entire sample. Congratulations. That's exciting. So for I mean, that person, I was like, yes. To be a superlative at anything is exciting. You, you have achieved I mean? something <laughs> in my sample. But when I went to Penn State, which is where I did my PhD, I was working with hair samples that were drawn from a larger study of like 4,000 people, more than 4,000 people, where not only did I not know who those individuals were, like I'm not supposed to know, right? That privacy, very, very important thing. And so I wasn't able to report back anything like that unless they were part of a 
later addition to the study that I did, which was about red hair. So I did my master's paper during grad school on red hair. And we basically got permission to recontact all the redheads, all the people who reported they had red hair. And I was like, can I get some more hair, please? Um, and then I measure, like I worked together with those Japanese scientists that I had worked with uh, as an undergrad, Ito and Wakamatsu. And they reanalyzed those new hair samples for me. And I also took photos under the microscope of those individuals' hair. And so as part of that study, basically one of the incentives was, hey, please give me your hair and I will tell you about your hair. (laughs) And so that's something that I really enjoy. And, you know, as I'm thinking about future research that I'm doing and when I'm going to be working with people again, that is the kind of information I want to share back because I think it's so cool to be able to learn about yourself. And one of the things I want to offer people is, okay, if we're going to take your hair sample, analyze it, I want to give you a result where you can see relative to other people, like where your hair falls. Like it tells you a little bit something about like, hey, compared to the, you know, rest of humanity, what are you like? Yeah. And as a fake redhead, is (laughs) there like a shade on the market that's the closest to real redheads? Because I, mine is always a little too purple. Interesting. And if you leave it on a little too long, it gets more purple. It depends. Sometimes it works out. Sometimes it doesn't. Is there like a shade? Mm-hmm. Well, answer that. And then also, maybe this is kind of around the same thing, but when you are having to kind of quantify or, or people's different skin tones, is there like a Pantone wheel that you oh, whip out? I love answering this question. So like, okay. I, will, I will tell you, like, how do we measure people's skin color? So um, first... <laughs> I have no idea because I've not done any market research on like the colors that exist out there. It would, there's two reasons why that question is difficult to answer. The main reason is there are so many different shades of red hair Mm -hmm. because from that research that I did for my master's, you could have red hair in all kinds of ways. Like you could have red hair where you had a lot of pheomelanin and a lot of eumelanin. And so it was very dark and very red, but there are some people who had not so much eumelanin, but a lot of pheomelanin. And so it was like much more orange looking. So there are so many different shades of red hair that it would be difficult just on that basis alone to be like, okay, this shade is like the most realistic. That said, there are going to be more plausible (laughs) colors of red and things where you're like, unless you are some alien life form that has developed a new shade of melanin that is purple, this seems unlikely, but I could not give any good advice. However, that said, it would be a fun study to do and be like, okay, who's the real redhead here? Yes. Uh, Fun game. (laughs) I mean, I literally have like Googled a picture of a baby orangutan to be like this shade right here. I would like that, please. (laughs) Give me orangutans are great. Orangutans manage to be a fun color. Do orangutans, do they have pheomelanin? Melanin? It is pheomelanin that makes their hair orange because we know that that is the only pathway we have in mammals, I want to say, to get that red color. I say in mammals because birds can have red feathers. And what makes red feathers is actually not pheomelanin. A lot of times it's a type of carotene. For more on feathers, yes, we have a whole plumology episode, which I will link in the show notes. You are welcome. And then their blue is a like an absence of pigment sometimes, right? Yes, it's a structural color, just like our eyes. And this is like another fun fact that I like to whip out at parties. I'm so much fun at parties. Invite me, y'all. <laughs> I'm like, did you know that there's no blue pigment in blue eyes? It's a structural color. So if you align collagen in a particular orientation, the way that the light hits it makes it look blue. Just like there's no blue pigment in the sky, but it's 
Is it the Tyndall or Raleigh scattering? One of the two oh, scatterings. Oh, I, I think it's Raleigh, but I'm not sure. Yes, I think it's, or is it Rayleigh? It's a Rayleigh, Rayleigh scattering in the sky and then a Tyndall, a Tyndall scattering in the eyes. Now, the difference between those two has to do with like the size of the particles that is reflecting the light. Ask a physicist. <laughs> <laughs> So, of course, Dr. Lucy C. was right. And as we covered in the ophthalmology episode on eyeballs, the physics of the blue sky is called Rayleigh scattering, and that has something to do with the size of the particulates. But in the eye, in the iris, it's called the Tyndall effect. So in blue-eyed peepers, that lack of pigment lets the shorter wavelengths in blue light scatter and reflect back like little freaky translucent bounce boards boggling, perhaps, but not as boggling as the cultural discussion ignited by a 2016 episode of the FX drama, You're the Worst. You don't wash your legs. No way. What am I, a sucker? Well, you take showers and you don't wash your legs. What am I going to do? Like bend down and wash my legs? Who has the time? Which continued to cause some really heated debates on Twitter in May of 2019, before Twitter became like a place to exchange emergency pandemic information. And then before everyone scattered to Mastodon and Twitter became like an abandoned mall. I don't know if anyone asked about this, but as I'm pulling this up, you know the Twitter discussion about how why people don't exfoliate enough and they don't wash their legs? Are you familiar with this? Yes. <laughs> yes, I'm familiar. <laughs> Which, by the way, mm-hmm. washcloth all the way. Yes, washcloths. We love washcloths. Love them. But is there something about not having a lot of skin pigment where you don't realize how much you've, your shed, like how ashy you are? <laughs> and I'm wondering if there's some sort of biological, anthropological reason why so many white people are like, I have to wash my legs? I don't understand. Anyway. Um, so- Two things. One, at some point we should circle back to me answering how you measure skin color because I never answered that. Oh my gosh, yes, thank you. And to answer that question, so basically put another way, is ashiness just not visible on lightly pigmented individuals? Yeah. That could be a significant factor. So imagine you have like dryness and when our skin flakes off uh, and, and dries, like it's these thin layers that end up reflecting more light. And so they look lighter than the rest of your skin, especially if you have darker skin. So that, that ashiness is then, you know, probably more evident. I'm not saying this definitively because I don't even know if anyone has ever studied this. Like, you know, can you just not see that lightly pigmented individuals are very ashy? I think that it's mostly a question of culture and like, you know, whether something is important or not important. However, the interesting thing about like human variation is we think about like, you know, light and dark, but we also talk about like white people. There are lightly pigmented individuals who are not white Europeans, right? And darkly pigmented individuals who are not black or of African descent. And so the question would be, are there any other variables that influence how your skin retains moisture that are differently distributed around the world? Because it could also be that maybe there are some aspects unrelated to pigmentation at all, where people of African ancestry actually have skin that loses moisture more quickly. And therefore, you know, moisturizing is more important. Now, when it comes to exfoliating, there's just like so many exfoliating and washing and bidets. You, I really wouldn't want to rob anyone of the opportunity of going through Twitter and just experiencing <laughs> firsthand the observations and discussions that exist there. But I can tell you that from the perspective of anthropology, there is not a body of literature that covers that. Maybe perhaps, perhaps in the future. Perhaps in the future. We shall see. 
But for now, we have some really great articles and op-eds on the matter, like the 2019 piece written by Nicole Hernandez-Roillo, who noted that, quote, not washing your legs or not taking a shower every day is not class rebellion, but a display of which bodies are allowed to be unwashed without stigma attached. Being understood as dirty or clean can be the line between violence and survival for minorities, Nicole writes. And in a March 2021 Vogue article titled, More Than Just Dry Skin, The Cultural Significance of Ashiness, Black journalist and editor Andrea Plaid writes, quote, Ashiness at its core colloquially means dry skin, which along with having red blood is a trait much of humanity shares at some point in our lives. On skin tones that are darker than a phenotypically pale-skinned white person, the higher contrast of the grayish-white patches and the surrounding areas makes the condition more visible, Andrea writes. However, Andrea continues, in that alchemy of Black social struggle, Black personal grooming, and Black linguistic cool, it has metastasized from the dermatological to the cultural and political. Ashy signifies not only a dry epidermis, but also a careless lack of self-upkeep and communal neglect, Plaid concludes. The battle against ashiness also reflects Black people's ingenuity under white supremacy's withering dehumanization. And you did mention, you know, as a biological anthropologist, when it comes to even 10 or 15 years ago, I feel like in America, someone would say, oh, this African-American man. Mm-hmm. And we don't say that anymore because mm-hmm. it's not always representative of what their heritage is. Yeah. But when it comes to someone who studies pigment and the difference between the way that people use labels in ways Ooh. that are helpful mm-hmm. and not helpful, do you see a direction that that's going that's just more respectful of people's backgrounds, mm-hmm. but also not so categorical? I think about this so much. <laughs> I would say that like, <laughs> like most of the time, what I think about is how we conceptualize and measure and discuss human variation. What is the most appropriate way to do it? So the example that you gave like let's let's go from there and unpack it. So okay. I have had people refer to me as African American mm-hmm. because they do not want to say black. And so <laughs> like, oh, well, to say African American is the PC way to say that somebody is black. And historically, in some cases, like people have claimed that. So I'm like, I understand that. However, by a lot of definitions, what people mean when they say African American is someone who's ancestors have been in the U.S. for a number of generations and are descended of people who were enslaved. Mm -hmm. I'm a, not even a first generation person. I just came like, what, how many, like eight years ago, seven years ago to the U.S. So I'm not part of that population. So there's a lot of reasons why that's an issue beyond just thinking about respect. If you're thinking about scientific studies that we want to do, especially medical studies, where we think like, hey, this group of people who have a lot of shared ancestors might have a lot of shared genetic variation that's associated with, you know, some condition or some trait. You don't want to assume that someone who is does not share any ancestors with them at all just because they look similar is in the same group. You don't want to include those people in the same category. So for example, I experienced that a lot in uh, medical settings where there is a so-called African-American correction. Mm-hmm. So kidney. Yes. G-R-F-E. <sighs> yep. 
So this is EGFR, or estimated glomular filtration rate. And we covered in the nephrology episode that EGFR is a measure of how well your kidneys clean pee and water out of your blood. And we also talked about how there's something called a race-based coefficient. And that's based on the assumption that Black patients have higher muscle mass. What does this mean for Black patients? It means delays in seeing specialists, less access to kidney transplants, and of course, worse health outcomes. So after petitions were started by med students, Mount Sinai announced in 2020 that they switched to the more accurate chronic kidney disease epidemiology collaboration equation to calculate that EGFR, and they eliminated the race-based coefficient. And if you're not Black, you may not have even been aware this existed. There's a lot of like there's there's a number of different metrics in blood work where I've seen that and I'm like, huh, like they gave me an African-American correction, which is confusing for a lot of reasons. And also because I have one European parent and one African parent. So mm-hmm. I'm like, how like what's your logic behind that? Like, what do you assume is the reason that you need to make that correction. So this is just the question of like labels and the fact that, you know, African-American confounds a lot of different things. But in general, what you also want to think about is what you are describing. I have seen people avoid talking about race by talking about skin color instead. They're like, oh, people with like darker skin. And I'm like, do you mean people with darker skin or do you mean black people? Because there are black people who have very light skin and might, for example, have issues with, let's say, facial recognition. That's a huge thing these days. So like, there's a lot of facial recognition, like it literally our phones, me and my iPhone, mm-hmm. um, that can, can't recognize my face half the time, require training data sets that represent a range of human variation. And when we're making those data sets, it's important that we are cognizant of different traits that vary in people and that we make sure that those traits are represented so that a system is trained to distinguish individuals that are variable on all of those axes. Now, if you say, okay, we need to make sure we have a lot of people who have dark skin in there, there's going to be other facial uh, variables that aren't taken into account for that. So you could have a whole group of dark-skinned individuals and not a single person of African ancestry because you could have everyone be South Asian. You could have everybody be Native American from, you know, the Amazon and have very dark skin, no African ancestry necessarily. And on the other hand, you could have individuals who are pretty light-skinned have African ancestry and have features that is shared with other people who have African ancestry doesn't have anything to do with skin color. And so one of the things that I found is that there's this hesitancy to talk about human variation. In general, my entire platform is human variation is not a bad thing. That is what I want to educate people about. And like as a professor, that's what I'm going to be lecturing about. I want to empower people to think about human differences as a neutral and maybe even positive, fascinating thing. Instead of necessarily thinking we need to say that all humans are the same, because if we say that there are differences, that's necessarily going to lead to bad things. However, bad things only happen when you rank differences, when you say some types of people are better than other types of people, which is not even a scientifically valid question. That's a subjective qualitative opinion theoretically, that you could argue in a philosophical context, but not in a scientific context. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that we need to think about is how we talk about that variation. 
how do we want to think about these things? There's a lot of different ways. And one of the more common ways to refer to these differences these days is ancestry. Like, so this concept of ancestry. Now, the difference between ancestry and race and ethnicity can be complicated. But in general, if I wanted to quickly define it, what I would say is ancestry can be a useful way of thinking about things if you're thinking specifically about ancestors. Do you have more shared ancestors? Do you have fewer shared ancestors? And one way of thinking about that is, you know, talking about different geographical regions, but you have to be careful about that. Like you can have people who have African ancestry and are very distantly related because their African ancestors could be from different parts of Africa, haven't had a shared ancestor for a very long time. They could be more genetically different from each other than somebody from, you know, Western Europe and somebody from Central Asia. Mm -hmm. So we have to think about ancestry in this dynamic way that is continuous. Like we don't have different subspecies of humans. We don't have different types of humans because humans are a relatively new species that has like exploded all over the world and has interacted and intermingled in all kinds of ways. And let's not even bring in Neanderthals. I'm not going to bring in Neanderthals. I'm tempted to bring in Neanderthals. They're on my mind. They're always on my mind. Just a quick side note. We didn't even know Neanderthals, aka Homo Neanderthalensis, existed until the mid-1800s. But just to give it um, a little bit of context, humans discovered dinosaurs in 1824. No one knew there were dinosaurs before the early 1800s. What? So of course we didn't know that there was another species of humanoid that was our Western Asia roommate for 40,000 years. So sure, yes, we boned 55,000 years ago, but species lines, they're kind of blurry. And that's why I'm married to a man with a prominent brow ridge who loves equipment of all kinds and can boast having more Neanderthal DNA than 95% of other 23andMe customers. But enough about our pasts. And I mean, do you think this is something when it comes to what you'll be studying and lecturing on in the future, like how do you decide which direction to go when there's so much that has yet to be explored and really looked at and written on so many Wikipedia entries that don't exist yet? Bro, I don't even know what I'm doing next week. I struggle to prioritize what I need to do in the day. So like, <laughs> it's a great, this is a great question. I wish I had an answer for me, honestly. I wish I had an answer for myself. But in general, like the directions that I want to go in research wise is to continue to answer questions about hair. So that was like my first love. Mm -hmm. And I want to continue because I still don't have the answers that I want about what is the genetic basis of hair morphology? And with that, I want to answer, like, why do we have differences in scalp hair around the world? How did those evolve? Was natural selection involved? Was it just like random chance? And I want to go even further back and answer the question of why do humans have scalp hair with naked bodies? Weirdos. <laughs> it's a great Freaks. question. I love it. It's but I want to understand it. Why? What was, what was the reason? What was the reason? And also soap dispensers that work dispensers. with people who aren't white. Yep. Exactly. Have you seen those videos? I have seen those videos. Yep. Yeah. How does that happen? And actually, that circles us really <laughs> nicely back to how do you measure skin color? Oh, right. So why do soap dispensers not work? And what does that have to do with how you measure skin color? So a way of measuring skin color that we use is using this uh, device called a reflectance spectrophotometer. Come again? Reflectance spectrophotometer. So what those devices do, 
there's different kinds, but the ones I use, it shines light on your skin and then measures what is reflected back. And color is really about what areas of the visible light spectrum are being reflected versus which ones are being absorbed and how much light is being reflected versus how much is being absorbed. And there are different parts of the visible light spectrum that can tell you things about different color components, including melanin. So there's this thing that we can calculate called melanin index from that information. So melanin index is a metric of how melanated your skin is relatively. And it goes from like the lowest numbers I've seen is like 20 something to over 120. Mm -hmm. And that is a way of objectively measuring skin color. We don't have to do Pantone, like, you know, matching and all that kind of stuff. (laughs) Now, what's interesting is that that also has to do with why these soap dispensers don't necessarily work because they also use light. And I'm pretty sure, I think they use red light. We have similar issues with pulse oximeters where Mm. they're not able to measure oxygen content accurately in people with darker skin because they're calibrated to assume that, okay, well, if this is the information you're getting back, this is the light that's being absorbed or reflected, this is what that means. But when you're doing something that affects light reflection and absorption, you need to correct for various things like melanin that absorb light. Mm -hmm. And that is what's really not being done in a lot of those settings because sometimes people assume like, oh, if it works in these individuals, it must work for everyone. And again, that is why I get on my little soapbox and I'm like, it's important to teach people about like human variation because there are things like this where surprise human variation is actually going to influence whether this works for everyone. It is not just like a basic principle of like it works or it doesn't. It's who does it work for and what different features in humans might affect how this works. Mm -hmm. And when you're using the machine Mm -hmm. that gives you a number, 20 between 120. Reflectance spectrophotometer. Do you have to do that on like their untanned butt? (laughs) Where do you do that? Um, So I've had discussions with with one of my uh, former advisors about that. And yes, like uh, somewhere where the light never touches would be (laughs) ideal. In some ways, we found a nice compromise using the inner part of your arm. So yeah, the inside part of your upper arm is like relatively a place that receives like less, what would you call it? Like less uh, radiation is less likely to be tanned. Mm -hmm. However, sometimes we actually want to measure that. So I have data from some studies where we measure people's foreheads and that in order to ask a question of like, oh, how tan is that individual? Like how much melanin could they make under, you know, the solar radiation that they've been exposed to? So there's that. And actually one of my advisors has done a study where basically they measured, I want to say the top part of people's butts and like, you know, (laughs) how light or like how melanated it was, but also how red it was. And then they basically exposed them to like, you know, a little bit of radiation there. And like, I don't know, gave them sunburns on their butt. (gasps) And we're like, how sunburned did you get? And how long did it take for that sunburn to go away? Which just like, there are really fun science experiments out there that people have done. You're like, oh, I'm I'm helping some researchers. I'm I'm helping science. I'm showing them my butt cheeks. (laughs) Can I ask you questions from listeners? Oh, absolutely. We have so many. We'll go through as many as we can. Mm -hmm. We're going to lightning round. You ready for this? Yes. 
But before we dive in, let's toss some money toward the cause of her choosing, which is the Fieldwork Initiative, which seeks to maintain a network for victims who have struggled with gendered violence while conducting research. And it also promotes pre-fieldwork training seminars that shed light on the realities of trauma and racism and gendered violence in fieldwork. So shout out to their founder, Jerrica Hines, who Tina says is a wonderful human being. So you can find out more at fieldworkinitiative.org. And thank you, sponsors of Ologies, for making that donation possible. This podcast and my life is brought to you by Squarespace. Do you know that I didn't have a website for forever because I was putting it off because I was scared? And then I heard another podcast talk about Squarespace. I was like, I'm going to give it a shot. I had a website up that day. They have beautiful templates. They host. Squarespace is the all-in-one website platform for entrepreneurs to stand out and succeed online. Look at me. Even I did it. You can sell products. You can sell your time. They have this guided design system. It's called Squarespace Blueprint. You can select from a layout. There are styling options. You can get your website discovered with these integrated, optimized SEO tools so people find you when they Google. They also have easy-to-use payment tools, so checkout, very easy for customers, which is what you want. There's also Squarespace AI, which can help you explain what your site is about. You can choose your tone. Whether you're a scientist who wants to share your work with the world, whether you are starting up a business selling tiny paintings of tiny books, or a choreographer selling dance classes, head to squarespace.com for a free trial, and when you're ready to launch, go to squarespace.com slash ologies to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or a domain. I recommend it to all my friends even when I'm not recording an ad. Okay. This episode is brought to you by Merrick Pet Care. And y'all know I have a little dog named Grammy, which is short for Gremlin. And y'all help me name her. And there's nothing that we like more than seeing her happy, which means tasty dog foods. And Merrick has been crafting high quality dog food for over 30 years. They were founded in Hereford, Texas, but Grammy doesn't care about that. She cares about smushing her face in it and then licking the bowl. And I don't blame her because they use real ingredients and homestyle recipes like real Texas beef and sweet potato or Grammy's pot pie. Grammy's like, Grammy's pot pie. Get away from it. It's mine. I also like that on the bag, they show what's in it. And they always use deboned meat, fish, or poultry as the number one ingredient. And I think Grammy appreciates that. So check out Merrick online or in your local pet store and look for their new packaging with real ingredients shown on the bag and inside it. Yum, 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 yum. Oh, KiwiCo. We love you. Kids love you. Parents love you. Uncle Allie's love you. Here's the deal. So whether you're staying at home or you're heading out on some summer explorations, KiwiCo is inviting kids, also kids at heart, that's you, to enjoy their first ever summer adventure series. So kids from two years old to teens can receive six hands-on science and art project kits over six weeks. They have something for everyone. They have different topics for each age, whether your kid wants to explore space or learn about dinosaurs. And I've heard from my parental friends that summer can be a little challenging to keep the kids busy. KiwiCo's like, we did the legwork for you. And the Summer Adventure Series is this personalized experience with super fun activities like a bottle rocket kit where kids can build an actual bottle rocket. And you can either receive all of your summer adventure crates at once or weekly for six weeks. I think it's so amazing that they have different crates for different ages. Everything from the great outdoors that has like giant bubbles or a window garden to a trebuchet kit for ages 9 to 14. An entrepreneur where you can do textured clay 
play projects. If you have kids, if you know kids, keep them occupied and learning and having fun this summer with KiwiCo. And you can get 20% off your summer adventure series at kiwico.com slash ologies summer. That's 20% off your summer adventure at kiwico.com slash ologies summer. Oh, have fun. Oh, hi, it's me, the lady that checks a bunch of scholarly articles before she believes anything. Allie Ward. And I feel like we are similar in that we have a fair amount of skepticism and we like to dive deep and find out what the actual facts are. This is why when it comes to any kind of supplements, I enjoy Ritual, which is a female-founded B Corp, meaning that they're holding themselves accountable to not just the company, but also to the health of people in our planet. And they're clinically backed essential for women at 18 plus multivitamin has these high quality, traceable key ingredients in bioavailable forms that are clean. Only about 1% of supplement brands are USP verified and Ritual is one of them. So I like being able to trust what I'm putting in my body. From an aesthetic standpoint, I'll also tell you that Ritual are beautiful little vitamins. They look like lava lamps and they taste like mint. So taking my Ritual is part of my, I guess, morning ritual. I, that's probably why they named it that and I didn't even think about it. Anyway, no more shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust. So get 25% off your first month at ritual.com slash ologies. You can start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash ologies for 25% off. Down the hatch. All right. Your questions, patrons, including first-time question asker Eleonora Lux and Sarah Ayala. Okay, several people, among them Anne Hanlon and some other people, want to know why does the sun make your skin darker but your hair lighter? Ooh, that's a great question. Right? Oh, that is such a great question. Okay, so the reason sunlight makes a lot of people's skin darker is because it stimulates melanocytes in your skin that is alive. Important. Mm-hmm. To make more melanin. And so that is a physiological response that is activated by sunlight. And when it comes to your hair, your hair is dead. May they rest in peace. So any melanin that is in your hair that gets destroyed can't be replaced. So if you have already like relatively little melanin in your hair, Mm -hmm. your hair can undergo what is called photobleaching, which really just means the pigment was destroyed by light and it's not there anymore. So your hair is like lighter now. (gasps) Plenty of you. Lee T, Sharika Alahi, Manasvi Verma, Janetta Sor, Min09, Becky Grady, Trevor Doty all had SBF questions. And Lori B asked, can we please once and for all have the final answer about black folks and sunscreen? Yes, no, sometimes. Bryn wants to know, How did humans figure out how sunscreen works? Like, and did humans use substances found in nature as sunscreen? Also, feel free to lecture us about sunscreen right now. (laughs) Open forum if need be. Great question. So first, when and how did humans discover that you can protect your skin from the sun? Unclear, but there are some groups in East Africa, I want to say Tanzania, who use red ochre on their skin. But it's basically like this red, like sand clay pigment that they can put on their hair and their skin that protects their skin from the sun. So like, even if you have dark skin, you can benefit from reducing the amount of radiation that you're exposed to. You can just benefit from it because Mm -hmm. like, why put your skin through it? Why put your melanin through it? If, if you don't have to, especially if there's already enough solar radiation for you to get the vitamin D that you need. We have evidence of humans playing around with ochre. I want to say 
200,000 years ago. That's a number that seems like that I remember, I think, where we have engraved pieces of ochre. And so it's possible like humans started playing around with that, put it on them and we're like, hey, this does something. But we can't really know for sure about when they started using it. But yes, correct. According to the paper, assessing the photoprotective effects of red ochre on human skin by in vitro laboratory experiments, red ochre or hematite, which is a deeper red variety of iron oxide, has been used in Africa since the Middle Stone Ages some 280,000 years ago. And it has a sun protection factor, or an SPF, up to 13. And you're like, what does that number mean? Well, the SPF number means that fraction of the burning radiation will reach the skin. But most sunscreens only block UVB rays. And we know UVA can also cause damage to skin and cancer. So look for a broad spectrum SPF and look into mineral sunscreens, especially if you want to spare negative effects on ecology like coral reefs. You can see the Nidariology episode on corals with Dr. Shale Matsuda for more on that. A great question, Heidi Stushnoff says, black-white mixed person here. I and a few other mixed people I know tend to go blotchy when we tan. What's up with that? Interesting. Blotchy. Hmm. So I assume that that means you get an uneven tan, and I'm going to assume that you're mostly noticing it in your face. I don't know why I'm making these assumptions. I'm acting like I'm a psychic. (laughs) (laughs) So actually, as a fellow um, mixed person that has one white parent and one black parent, I would say that I don't go blotchy. But what's really interesting about humans is that especially when you get mixed humans, so people who have parents who are from populations that don't have shared ancestors for a very long time, you could get whatever the fuck in that mix. (laughs) Um, I like to call myself an F1 hybrid. Don't ever call anyone an F1 hybrid. You can call yourself an F1 hybrid if you want. That's what I do. You never know what you're going to get in that first generation. You can get a lot when you mix genes that haven't been mixed together in a long time. So my intuition would be if you are going blotchy, do you maybe mean you're getting freckles? Because that can be something that we perceive as that. Another form of blotchiness that like people talk about is melasma or like a pregnancy mask. So during pregnancy and other moments where your hormones are doing things, it's possible to basically get an uneven patchy distribution of like darker pigmentation on your skin. So that might be a hormonal thing as well. I am not the kind of doctor that diagnoses people with anything. (laughs) So if it is an issue, definitely talk to people. But my intuition would be to ask, you sure you don't have freckles? And two, could you be pregnant? I don't know. Interesting (laughs) questions. Perhaps follow up on their part indeed. Um, A bunch of folks. Looking at you, patrons Kendall M., Aaron Ryan, Zombot, Cynthia B., Lauren Seibert, Kayla C., Alexandra Catul, Vero Tavares, Brittany Corgan, McElroy, Josh Fry, Shannon Bushnell, and Samantha Rays, who asked, why has my melanin ghosted me? All of you. Wanted to know about the condition of vitiligo, Mm. which from what I understand, autoimmune? Yeah. I'm not, I don't, I'm not a medical person, so I don't focus very much on that. But from what I know, vitiligo, autoimmune condition that destroys melanocytes. So with a lot of different autoimmune conditions, basically you're self-destructing things that you don't need to be self-destructing. And that is one of those examples. So that's what's happening there as Mm -hmm. far as I know. As to like, you know, why I don't, I, I, I wouldn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. 
So patrons Jules and Jennifer Huseman also asked this, and vitiligo can occur in up to 2% of the population. So it's pretty frequent, if you ask me. And it happens when your T-cells go bully your melanocytes, and then areas of skin wind up with less pigmentation. And right now, there isn't a cure for this, but there's laser therapy, which can help, and corticosteroids can also benefit some folks, as can phototherapy with that shorter but more intense form of light, the UVB rays. So you can look into that, but also, it's gorgeous. I think it's gorgeous. So there's your internet dad's two cents, and I have good taste. Now, this next question was asked by patrons Beth Kennedy, Scott Sheldon, and first-time question asker Marianne Thomas. And it's a real chin scratcher. I thought this was a great question. Nina Jacoby wants to know, why do some people have brown scalp hair but red beards? Oh, that's such a great question. What's up with that? That's one of my favorite things. I was going to say I'm a criminal. I am not a criminal. Please do not arrest me. This is not a confession. Hounced ever. <laughs> I am a weird person. People who have beards, I'm like, I saw that you have some red hairs in your beard. I'm really interested. Do you want to talk about that <laughs> yeah, some more? You have a PhD in this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like, this isn't weird. It's for science. Yeah. I'm a, it's, it's okay. That's how I justify. I'm always like, this isn't weird. Because I study this. So we don't know like the exact reason why, but we can infer that hormones have something to do with it. So beards are a great example of a secondary sexual characteristic. So sex is a whole dimension of variation that you can have in people that we can most clearly see within an individual as they age because you go through puberty and things happen and you can go through other things in your life where your hormones are doing things. And when it comes to beards, you know that those come through during puberty when you're having an increase in certain kinds of hormones and there's going to be an interaction with the hormone receptors and their distributions in certain places. And so what we can infer is that it's probably interacting with melanocytes in some kind of way. And there is melanocyte stimulating hormones. So hormones aren't just like, you know, sex hormones. There are all kinds of hormones that are giving each other signals and basically affect how different traits are expressed. So this is totally just like a random tangent where I'm giving you more questions. We don't understand how, but basically hormones probably are doing something. Ah, Katie Munoz wants to know, I heard that blonde-haired, blue-eyed people inherit their coloring from Neanderthals. Is this true? Oh, that's a very interesting question. To my knowledge, that is not not the case. Too um, simple. That's too simple, it's, it's right? Too, it's always it's too simple. It can never be simple, right? It yeah. has to be complicated. So absolutely, we think that there's probably some genetic variation associated with skin and pigmentation that was contributed to some populations by Neanderthals. We don't necessarily think that blue eyes and blonde hair are a gift from Neanderthals. Um, You may have also heard something about Neanderthals having red hair. So that is actually based on a study that got a lot of things wrong. And we do not have any evidence that Neanderthals necessarily had red hair, nor do we know much about what they would have looked like necessarily because they have some types of genetic variation that aren't present in modern people. Aha. Uh-huh. So they fucked that one up a bit. Uh, a little bit. A little bit. A little bit. Graying hair. Katie Stomps wants to know, why do some people go gray white earlier than others? Their hair has significant white and they're in their late 20s. <sighs> My jealous. grandmother was a real Steve Martin and she went white early, but she also had 11 children. 
Wow. By like 30. Ah. Catholic on a farm. What, have I what are you going to do? My life? This person has, <laughs> I have one dog. I know. She would, she evolutionarily. One. Very successful. One. Very you, <laughs> she understood the assignment. She got it. She understood the assignment. She got it. So yes, Grandma Ward. She was a real one. 11 kids by 30. And I have more cousins than I can literally count. I don't know how many cousins I have. We wanted to add manic panic to my grandma's hair so bad, uh, but she had access to farm equipment that could kill us. But anyway, patrons Katie Stomps, Delaney, Frederick A., Schweigart, Catherine Wood, Abby Sachs, Naomi Jame, I Has Questions, Pachicha, Rogue Dookie, Jenna Congan, Nina Eve Z, Trevor Durning, Earl of Grambleton, Jess Luffler, Lacey, Pavka34, Rachel Kasha, and first-time question askers Jen Crawford and LB all asked about silver streaks and death's icy grip. But gray hair, Tim Flar wants to know, can gray hair ever regain its original coloring or are we just screwed once it loses its color? So yeah, is it that the the stem cells or the melanocytes are just like, I'm out? I'm out. Yeah. And that is really interesting, right? Because we see that happen with hair, but we don't have evidence of in age, a kind of senescence or aging where skin melanocytes are just like, oop, I'm completely out. There is some evidence that, you know, in some people there's decreased melanocyte activity in their skin as they age, but nothing like hair where it's just like, I'm out. Also, mm-hmm. I would like to state that I do not have a single gray hair <gasps> to demonstrate the amount of hardship that I went through in my PhD. <laughs> so I am very, very jealous of anyone who does have it. And I will sometimes fake it by braiding my hair with like, you know, gray hair and being like, no, I am... Learned and wise. You're professorial. I'm professorial. At the temple. At the the temple. Exactly. Boom. So yes, gray hair has a little bit of eumelanin, the black kind, and appears silvery because that's all of the pigment it has. But brown eumelanin without other pigments gives someone blonde hair. A little bit of brown eumelanin and some pheomelanin, that's a recipe for ginger hair. But back to gray hair, that loss of pigment as you age, or maybe if you're under a lot of stress. So I looked this up, and there was a July 2021 cell biology paper titled Quantitative Mapping of Human Hair Graying and Reversal in Relation to Life Stress. And it noted that aligning the hair pigmentation patterns with recent reports of stress in the hair donors' lives showed striking associations. And when one donor reported an increase in stress, a hair lost its pigment. When the donor reported a reduction in stress, the same hair regained its pigment. Furthermore, it continued, white hairs contained more proteins linked to mitochondria and energy use, which suggests that metabolism in mitochondria may play a role in hair graying. I don't know what this means for your hair or for my hair. Maybe it's all stress. Let's just, let's take our phones. Let's agree to throw them in a hole. And then let's just go live in hammocks. Speaking of aging, Susie Kroger wants to know, their friends who are all on the cusp of 40 were talking when one asked what lotions were used for aging. So essentially, does more melanin prevent you from aging so quickly or does it prevent the appearance of aging? Yes. So this is one of the things that I find useful to talk about. And also when I'm trying to convince, you know, darker skinned people or people who are from populations where a lot of people are dark skinned to use sunscreen, radiation damage, like UV radiation can, 
is not just going to give you sunburns. It's not just going to give you cancer, but it just damages things. It is a damaging thing. It can damage collagen in your skin. And collagen is one of the things that gives your skin structure and makes it taut. It is one of the targets of a lot of cosmetic treatment to make you look young and have your skin, you know, be plump and all that kind of stuff. So long story short, if you have more melanin, the damage that you are being protected from is not just folate damage, DNA damage. It's also damage to your collagen. Mm. So that is why dermatologists are so like, I don't, if there's one thing that dermatologists all seem to like agree on is just a wear sunscreen. Wear I don't know what they traumatize them with in dermatology <laughs> school, but the fear in their eyes is just like, photos of cancer. That's what's probably there. You know what? You, you were right. You're right. Photos of blistering tumors, which is like, as a person who has gotten some nasty sunburns in my life, like I pretty consistently have worn sunscreen every single day since high school. And mm-hmm. there's maybe a handful of times that I have left the house and been like, oh, I forgot it today. And mm-hmm. like, it's like I've panicked. It's mm-hmm. like I left a child in yeah. the oven or something. <laughs> like, just like, ah. And I did look this up and I found some articles that pointed to good sunscreens that don't leave behind chalkiness, such as Fenty, KK Skin Universal Mineral Face Lotion, SPF 55. Supergoop has a matte sunscreen, SPF 40. Black Girl Sunscreen, and Elta MD is rated highly for clear sunscreens. And yeah, there are two kinds of sunscreen. There's physical sunscreen, which has minerals like titanium oxide and zinc oxide that just straight up block the rays. And then there are chemical sunscreens, which absorb the UV rays and they convert them to heat energy, which is bonkers. So as Dr. Flip Tineda recommended in the Scotohylology episode, do your homework and... Wear sunscreen. If I could offer you only one tip for the future, sunscreen would be it. But onward to kind of more important matters. Trevor Doty wants to know, what's the gene that makes me fairly fur-free above the waist and elbows, and then it's fur town from there down to my fingers and toes? How come some people have furry butts and others don't? That is a great question. And again, it's one of those things where I'm like hormones. There's multiple factors that are going to affect any trait. But when it comes to the distribution of hair, a lot of times there are certain types of hairiness that occur like, you know, after puberty. And so you can say like, okay, there seems to be something that was activated after puberty. That wasn't Mm -hmm. the case. Like, you know, you look at babies and they're relatively furless. And they smell so good and they're so soft. Anyway, that's a tangent. That's separate. It's not an evolutionary question. They're just delicious sometimes. But at some point, like there seems to be an interaction with various parts of the body that are influenced and have a different distribution of hormone receptors, probably. One of the ways that you can see this is also like in pigmentation. So like our groins are actually much darker than other body parts. Oh. And it's not because there's more sun exposure, Right. Mm-hmm. But it's one of those areas in your body where you could be like, oh, yeah, hormones doing something. This might make me do an aside on butthole bleaching. We'll see. Uh, it's true. You can buy creams, but some of them might be carcinogenic. And uh, there's another one made of mercury. So don't do that. But a doctor can also point a laser at your butthole and try to lighten it if you're worried about skin pigment uniformity down there. You do you. It taint my business. 
I went to Thailand and huh. uh, and I was so surprised in the drugstores in Thailand how many bleaching creams there were, which we don't yeah. see here in the U.S. as much. Yep. Hydroquinone is something that I hear about a lot. And I think that might be one of the things that, one of the substances that is actually allowed here. There, are, I think there are a number of different substances that you can use to destroy melanin basically, but they can be very dangerous unsurprisingly. And so there are regulations that prevent them from being available in the US and in a lot of Europe, but there are other countries where you know you can get them and there's all of this pressure certainly contributed by colonialism to have lighter skin. So yeah, skin bleaching is like a a huge uh, issue in a lot of parts of the world. It was funny to me that there's so many tanning creams on our yep. shelves. Yep. And then there was so many and I was like, wow, there's so this is just a gag. Yeah, it's all it's so arbitrary and yeah, it's exactly. all so lucrative. I mean, it's actually much more like sinister than that in my opinion. Beauty has to do with what is unattainable to some extent. We value things that are hard to get. And so in a lot of history, historical cases, you can like see this and around the world, it's like what the elite has is difficult to get. And if it's easy to get, then it's not elite anymore and it's not special and therefore it's not beautiful. So what is beautiful isn't objective, but it has to do with people of high status having it. And at one point that was food yep. and extra adipose tissue yep. that meant you didn't starve. And, yep. it, and then at one point it was the time to have a trainer. Yep. And, and that was BBLs. Yep. And at one point, maybe it was staying indoors yep. and not getting a tan because you weren't laboring. Mm-hmm. And then at some point, it was being able to go vacation and yep. get a tan year round. And it's, yeah, it's just, what can we get you to spend your money on? How can we get you to hate yourself? How can we get you to hate yeah. yourself? Just yeah. to spend your money. See the Kalology episode about beauty standards for more on this just infuriating nonsense. Anything else uh, terrible, difficult, other than being a science communicator while you're also doing your postdoc and you're getting ready to have your own lab and everything. What's the hardest part about your job? Other than all those things, I feel like no, those are, those are probably the difficult things. I think the most difficult thing for me is picking one thing to focus on, really, because there's so many interesting questions to pursue and there's so many ways to try and answer those questions. There are just not enough hours in the day. Like there's not enough hours in the day for me to do all the reading that I want to do, to do all the experiments that I want to do, to learn all the analyses that I want to do, to collaborate with as many collaborators as I want to collaborate. Like there's just not enough time for all the things that I have to do, which hopefully is going to be alleviated a little bit by moving on from being like, you know, a one woman show. So starting next fall, I'm going to be assistant professor of anthropology at the University of Michigan. And I'm going to have grad students and a postdoc, at least one postdoc. So if anybody's interested in you know, the evolution and genetics of uh, human pigmentation, hair morphology, and you know, skin pigmentation, facial morphology, hit me up. Like I'm going to have my own lab. So hopefully having more people on the team and working together on answering questions is going to make that easier because... The more, the merrier. Oh, that's so exciting! If you need some, if you need to burn my butt, let me know. I'm uh, there for science. For science, for science, I'm so there. What about your favorite part about your career, your job, your discipline? I mean, my 
favorite thing about my discipline is that like I get to think about human variations just like you know humans are weird and variable and I get to just sit back and ask like huh what did that happen? And to me, that's just like so much fun. So I enjoy that about like my discipline. And my favorite thing about my career is that I have cobbled together a weird career where I get to do academic research and I get to do science communication and hang out with amazingly cool people like you, Ali. So that just makes me super happy. Thank you so much for doing this. You are just a a joy. Thanks for battling LA traffic to be here. Honestly, it was worth it. A lot of things are not worth the LA traffic and I will just stay home, but this was beyond worth it. You're the best. Thank you. Doctor. Oh my God. So ask lovely people ludicrous questions because how are we supposed to know everything if we don't ask? And Dr. Tina Lasisi is absolutely a gem on earth. We're lucky to know her. You can follow her on social media uh, at the links in the show notes, her SciComm is Aces. I enjoy her TikTok so much. Thank you so much, Doc, for being here. There's tons of links up on my website at aliward.com slash ologies slash melaninology. We are at ologies on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Allie Ward on both. I'm at Allie underscore ologies on TikTok, so do say hi. Thank you to Aaron Talbert for adminning the Ologies Podcast Facebook group with assist by Shannon Feltis and Bonnie Dutch. Thank you to Noel Dilworth for all of the scheduling and so much more. Susan Hale handles merch and so much for Ologies. Thank you, Emily White of The Wordery, for making transcripts available for free at AllieWard.com slash Ologies dash extras. We have kid-friendly episodes up called Smologies. You can download them all at AllieWard.com slash Smologies, which is linked in the show notes. Thank you, Zeke Rodriguez-Thomas and Mercedes Maitland for making those. Thank you, Kelly R. Dwyer, for the website help. Huge thanks to my Valentine, Mr. Jarrett Sleeper. And of course, thank you to lead editor and our favorite Canadian, Mercedes Maitland of Maitland Audio, for being the lead editor on Ologies Now. Assistant editing was also done by Mark David Christensen. Nick Thorbird wrote and performed the theme music. And if you stick around until the end of the episode, I'll tell you a secret. And this week's secret is that at Tiger Nuts, who's had them? What are these things? Got them at Trader Joe's. They're like these little tubers. And they're really chewy, and you can get them covered in chocolate. Apparently, they're like tiny potatoes. Some people say that 80% of uh, our ancestors' diets were just tiger nuts. Never heard of them before. Obsessed with them. Also, as long as we're telling secrets, yesterday was Valentine's Day. We were supposed to get this up yesterday. And I was too sad. Absolutely weird grief sideswipe. I've been doing pretty well. And then Valentine's Day came around. My dad was always the sweetest on Valentine's Day. We'd leave us little chocolates outside our rooms, little Valentines. I always, always have loved Valentine's Day. And yesterday, I just, all of a sudden, we went to my friend's house who just bought a house to go bring her a welcome gift. And then um, I went in her backyard and I cried a lot. But I'm feeling better today. Anyway, we're all humans. Tiger nuts. Delicious. Okay, bye-bye. the lifelike pigmentation.